Okay, so we are on lesson 16. We have to finish lesson 15 first, but we'll be in the lesson uh, 16, which you uh, should have gotten a copy of the notes when you came in, or there's copy on the uh, church website under the live stream uh, thing where this is appearing. So let me open in a word of prayer and we'll, we'll jump right in. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us and your kindness to us and allowing us to meet together. We're thankful for your word and that we get to study it and we get to learn these lessons from the Old Testament. Lord, be with us this evening. We want you to be uplifted. In Christ's name, amen. So we should be picking up with the death of Elisha. That's, that's where we should be picking up. Uh, in your notes, so I think in lesson 15, there's two sections that we we uh, did not finish last time, and that was the death of Elisha and um, the the king Amaziah. I think is the ones that we didn't do last time. So. Um, <clears throat> Whether we did them last time or not, we're going to do it again. <laughs> and so the death of Elisha is going to cover uh, chapter 13. So, it's, Frank, it's a little too hot. Um, from chapter 13, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And um, we want to note some things about what's happening here. First, we see at the beginning of chapter, or excuse me, verse 14 that Elisha has a terminal illness. It says, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die. So this is a uh, terminal illness that he has. Um, we also see that he's gonna get a visit from Joash, the king of Israel. It says, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Uh, basically an expression that reflects the status of Elisha in the nation of Israel. I, I think it's interesting that here's the king of Israel showing grief over the fact that Elisha is sick, is, is gravely ill. Um, you, you know, this is amazing because Elijah and then Elisha really became known as the troublers of Israel. I mean, Ahab calls uh, Elijah the troubler of Israel. These are the guys who cause the kings of Israel all their problems. And at least that's what they think. And so I think it's interesting that here's the king of Israel coming down and he is grieving over Elisha's illness. Um, then we see in verses 15 through 19 a prophetic sign. We see a prophetic sign here. Uh, verse 15, Elisha said to him, take up a bow and arrows. So he took up a bow and arrows. So he's talking to the king, Joash. Verse 16, then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. He put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hand on the king's hand. He said, open the window toward the east. And he opened it. 
And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he, so Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck it five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. So here's this prophetic sign where uh, the arrows here are symbolic or signify the victory that the Lord is going to give Israel over the nation of Aram. And the striking of the arrows on the ground is a indication of the extent of the victories that they will have over Aram. So uh, from verses 18 and 19, we see that uh, the victory that they will experience will not be total and complete victory um, because Joash didn't strike more than three times. And uh, we might wonder, well, why didn't, why didn't he? Well, it doesn't, doesn't say. It just tells us what he did and um, what was wrong with it. And, and so we see there's this prophetic sign. And then we see at, in verse 20 that Elisha dies. It says, he died. Well, I missed a couple points there, but that's fine. It says Elisha died and they buried him. So stop. You know, sometimes our Bibles and their versification, how they put verse numbers in and where they break things up, isn't always the best. This is one of those uh, verses where... Uh, just that first sentence is sort of a summary of what we've just talked about in verses 14 through 19. And uh, then it's not something totally new. It's the same context, but it's a new thought. And um, so here after Elisha dies, it, it mentions that they buried him. Then it's going to mention another burial. And this is going to be a, a rapid burial and a revival of a man says, now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they, is going to be Israelites, they saw a marauding band. And they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So... The situation here is that there's Moab raiders. There's raiders from the Moabites that are coming into Israel, and um, they're not trying to conquer anything. They're just trying to raid, and you know, really, their object's not to kill people. The object is to get stuff, and maybe get people. But um, anytime something like hap that happens, there's going to be people who get killed along the way. And these Israelites were burying a guy, and they saw him coming. They said, well, we got to get this over with. So they threw him into Elisha's grave. So it's just like, well, let's just chuck him into this tomb. It's uh, here. It's ready. 
And uh, they threw him in, and as soon as the man hit the bones of Elisha, he was revived and, and came out and stood on his feet. So <laughs> that would have been a shock. That would have been a shock. But I think the reason that this is in here is not just to tell us about the Moabite raiders and not just to tell a nice miracle story, but of the power of, that's attached to Elisha. And even, even when he is dead and gone, there's still going to be power in the words that he spoke to King Joash. And so we see in verses 22 through 23 a covenant-based uh, a covenant-based compassion. It says in verse 22, Now Haziel, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaziah. We saw that. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Um, so the them there is talking about Israel, the northern nation. So we see that the Lord is compassionate to them. And the reason that he is compassionate uh, to Israel is because of the covenant with Abraham. Now notice, notice how it says it here in, in our Bibles, his covenant with Abraham. Is that it? No. It mentions Isaac and Jacob. Okay, so the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, that same covenant is also made with the people of, of all the Jews. Um, so it doesn't just stop with those three, but he mentions those three as, a, as, as sort of a collective, a summary. This is the covenant I'm talking about. This covenant that I made with them. And that he wouldn't destroy them and they wouldn't uh, be cast from his presence until now. It doesn't mean that they're going to be cast from his presence now. It means he's been faithful to keep this covenant. God has been faithful in keeping this covenant up to this time. And he'll continue to be faithful uh, to keep it. So this lets us know that uh, God is being patient and long-suffering with even wicked Israel, giving them opportunity after opportunity to turn back to him. And even though they are wicked and even though they do not walk in his ways, God is not going to go back on his covenant that he made. And uh, we see that his compassion is based upon that covenant. Uh, next we see in verses 24 through 25, the fulfillment of the prophetic sign. Remember the prophetic sign with the bow and arrows? Here's the fulfillment. Verse 24. When Haziel, king of Aram, died, Benadad, and this will be Benadad number two, Benadad the second, his son became king in his place. Uh, then Jehoash, that's Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Benadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. 
So there you go, three times. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy. And so what's happening here is Haziel dies. Benadad II, his son, becomes king. Now, just a little history lesson. Benadad I is not related to Haziel or Benadad II. Benadad is just a, it's like a royal name that they would just, that's not his real name. That's just the name he picked up as the king. Um, and um, Jehoash, Joash of Israel is able to take back the cities that Haziel and Benadad II had captured from Israel. So he's able to take them back because um, the Lord has given Benadad into the hand of Joash three times. And so this is the conclusion of Elisha's ministry as he dies. And even the last thing in his life that's recorded here that he does is related to this prophecy of how Israel will um, defeat the uh, Arameans. And so now we're going to come to Amaziah, King Amaziah of Judah. King Amaziah of Judah. Chapter 14, um, the entire chapter covers his life. And so when we look at the, just the general information about this particular king, things that we need to know, he's the ninth king of Israel. Um, he reigns from about 796 to 767. So 796 to 767. So that's going to be 29 years. And the scripture references are going to be 2 Kings chapter 14 and 2 Chronicles chapter 25. So, uh, you know, these chapters cover basically the same information. Uh, 2 Chronicles sometimes adding a little bit more detail. So let's take a look at some of the specific points that we find here about Amaziah. First, in, in verses 1 through 4, we're given a general description about this king. It says, in the second year of Joash, son of, of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David, his father. He did according to all that Joash, his father, had done. Verse 4, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So he becomes king in the second year of Joash, king of Israel. Um, Joash, king of Israel, had become king in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah. This means that the second year of King Joash of Israel would be the 39th year of King Joash of Judah. Therefore, it's possible that um, Amaziah 
And Joash, his father, had one year of overlap between them. So it, that's, and that wouldn't be unusual for a father who is getting older and his son who's going to be the next king that they share the throne for a little bit. So he becomes king when he's 25 years old and he reigns 29 years. It says in verse 3 and 4 that he did right in the sight of the Lord, but with two qualifications. Number one, not like David. So he didn't do right like David did right, but he still did right. He did right like his father, Joash. Um, and how did his father, Joash, walk uh, with God, how's his walk characterized? You remember he started out good but fell into idolatry. So he did not live for the Lord his entire life. And um, Amaziah's walk is indicated by the fact that he also did not tear down the high places. Remember we talked about the high places before. These weren't um, places of idol worship as much as they were places that were just not the right place to worship. So the worship of God had to take place in Jerusalem. And they set up these high places so people didn't have to go to Jerusalem and they would sacrifice and burn incense there. And uh, they weren't to do that. So it's a corrupt worship uh, system. Now in verses five through six, we see that Amaziah executes uh, Josachar and Jehozabad. Okay, Jehozachar and Jehozabad. Uh, not too many people are naming their kids after these guys these days. Notice what it says in verse 5. It says, Now it came about as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand. And that's, that's probably much the general statement of all the kings is when they become king, there's a time of uncertainty and they really have to establish their rule. And it says that he killed his servants who had slain the king, his father. Now, um, you might remember that from chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, where it's talking about the death of Joash says his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash at the house of Milo as he was going down to Selah for Josachar, the son of uh, Shemeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, struck him and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah's son became king in his place. So. Uh, Amaziah comes back and he kills, he executes these guys. But notice in verse 6, um, he didn't uh, punish their families. It says in verse 6, But the sons of the slayers he did not put to death according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. As the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the sons, nor the sons be put to death for the fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own uh, sins. So he was carefully following 
the Mosaic Law. Instead of following the convention of the day, which would probably mean to kill these two conspirators and their families, he was careful to follow the Mosaic Law. Um, and of course, that law is about personal responsibility and personal accountability. The sons are not to be put to death for the sins of the father, nor the fathers for the sins of the sons. That's the, that is the, um, I think that's the second place. Or maybe that's the first place that's mentioned. Uh, it's mentioned somewhere else too. Can't remember exactly where it's at. Uh, I want to say in Ezekiel chapter 18. Yeah, Ezekiel chapter 18, 20, it says the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him, which is just reflecting the Mosaic law. So that's Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. So that would be a good cross-reference there if your Bible doesn't already have that. Um, and so he's, he's going to follow the Mosaic law here and, and sparing these sons. And so we see how he takes control of his kingdom and he executes these guys. And then we have the record of his military achievements. It says he, in verse 7, it says he killed of Edom in the valley of salt 10,000 and took Selah by war and named it Jokfel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaziah, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us face each other. So it's sort of like coming after you. Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar, which was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. So he's using a story to kind of warn uh, Amaziah about what he's asking for. Verse 10. Uh, it says, you will indeed defeat uh, Edom and your heart has become proud. Enjoy your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, uh, even you, would fall and Judah with you? So we have this record of this military success in verse 7 where he defeats Edom. Now, why don't we turn to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 25 real quick and look at this a little bit more closely. Second Chronicles 25, verses 5 through 13. It, it gives us a fuller description of this defeat and this 
uh, the, the military might and the military prowess of Amaziah. And remember now, Edom is sort of southeast of Judah. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 5, it says this. Moreover, Amaziah assembled Judah and appointed them according to their father's household under commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds throughout Judah and Benjamin. And he took a census of those from 20 years old and upward and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war and handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 valiant warriors out of Israel for 100 talents of silver. So mercenaries. Um, Israel, uh, Northern Kingdom Israelite mercenaries. Okay. Verse 7. But the man of God, but a man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go up with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, nor with any of the sons of Ephraim. So Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom, Israel. Verse 8. But if you do go, do it. Be strong for the battle. Yet God will bring you down before the enemy, for God has power to help and to bring down. Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? I've already paid these guys. What should we do? I've given them all this money. And the man of God answered, the Lord has much more to give to you than this. Then Amaziah dismissed them, that's this, the mercenaries, the troops which came to him from Ephraim to go home. So their anger burned against Judah, and they returned home in fierce anger. So they were upset that they weren't going to be able to go. And it's not clear whether they're upset because he just went back on his word and took the money back, or they were upset because in, in that day when you fought somebody and you defeated them, you got to keep all the spoils of war. So... That would have been money, they, you know, extra money. Verse 11, now Amaziah strengthened himself and led his people forth and went to the valley of salt and struck down 10,000 of the sons of Seir. The sons of Judah also captured 10,000 alive and brought them to the top of the cliff and threw them down on the top, from the top of the cliff so that they were all dashed to pieces. But the troops whom Amaziah sent back from going with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Haron and struck down 3,000 of them and plundered much spoil. Okay, so that gives us a much fuller description than in 2 Kings chapter 14 where we get one verse. Uh, yeah, and so it, it gives a, a better description of what is happening there with the defeat of Edom. So what we saw there is that Amaziah prepared and organized his army. He gets mercenaries. He's warned about these mercenaries from the prophet of God who says, God's not with these people. He's with you. He's not with these people. And so he sends them away, but Amaziah's worried about the money. And when he sends these Israelite mercenaries away, um, they're mad. And so when they go back, they just start plundering the cities of Judah. 
So they're going to get their money one way or another. They're going to get the spoils of war one way or another. And um, so Amaziah defeats Edom by killing 20,000 of them. He, he kills 10,000 in battle and then pretty much summary execution of 10,000 more. He takes them to the top of a cliff, pitches them off. And so that's, that's the description there. Um, next we see, now let's go back to 2 Kings. Keep your finger in, in 2 Chronicles, though. Let's go back to 2 Kings. Here. And we see uh, Amaziah's defeat by King Joash of Israel in verses 8 through 14. I've, I've already read verses 8 through 10 where um, Joash of Israel warns Amaziah. Amaziah is coming off this victory of Edom where he kills 20,000 of them. Very successful military campaign. And he's getting a little bit full of himself. And he decides to say to Joash of Israel, hey, you want some of this? <laughs> And uh, Joash gives him this story where he's talking about a thorny bush and um, a cedar tree in Lebanon and this wild beast. And um, Amaziah is the thorny bush. And uh, the thorny bush gets trampled by the wild beast. And so this is, this is Joash's hint to Amaziah to say, you don't want to do this. This is not what you want to do. Now let's pick it up in verse 11 here. Chapter 14, verse 11. But Amaziah would not listen. That's always a problem. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. So that's already a bad start for the king of Judah. You're not even fighting on somebody else's territory. You're fighting on your own territory. Verse 12, Judah was defeated by Israel and they fled each to his tent. So the army disintegrates uh, right there at Beth Shemesh. It uh, just falls apart. Verse 13, then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, and the son of uh, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh, and came down to Jerusalem, tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. He took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, the hostages also, and returned to Samaria. So... Uh, Amaziah is soundly defeated. He is soundly defeated here. Now, what is not included in our account in 1 Kings is going to be Amaziah's apostasy. His apostasy. So to see that, we need to go back to 2 Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles... Chapter 25, in verse 14. 
Because it's, it's this apostasy that takes place between the victory over Edom and the defeat of uh, their defeat by the hands of Israel. It's going to be this apostasy that causes that defeat. So look at uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 14. Now, after Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought the gods of the sons of Seir, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? In other words, it doesn't even make any sense to get the gods of these losers. You won. They should be worshiping your God, not the other way around. Verse 16, as he was talking with him, the king said to him, Have we appointed you a royal counselor? So he tells the prophet, the man of God, who comes and tells him this, he said, Why are you even talking? Why are you, what are you talking about? Who are you to speak to the king? And so Amaziah says, stop. Why should you be struck down? Then the prophet stopped and said, I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this and I will not listen to my counsel. And so it's after that that he sends this message to King Joash of Israel and says, let's go fight. And that's why he's defeated, because of his apostasy that he does there. And so we see after he is defeated, after Amaziah is defeated by King Joash, we see the death of King Joash of Israel. So this is back in 2 Kings chapter 14. Seems like this weird inclusion here in verses 15 through 16 back in 2 Kings where it goes from Amaziah's, then it starts talking about Joash of Israel again. And it, it just says, says that he's dead, he's buried in Samaria, and Jeroboam, his son, became king in his place. And so we ask the question, I think we should ask the question, why include Joash of Israel dying in the middle of the account of Amaziah, king of Judah? Well, I think it's because they're so tightly intertwined and their, their reigns overlap. And the writer wants us to make sure that we know Amaziah outlasts Joash of Israel, but Joash of Israel did not die because he was conquered by Amaziah. He just died. So, after that, we see that um, Amaziah is killed by those in Jerusalem. So, Amaziah's death is going to be very similar to his father's death. Verse 17 through 22. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son 
of Jehoaziah, or Jehoahaz, king of Israel. So he lived 15 more years. Then it says, now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then verse 19, they conspired against him in Jerusalem. Now, isn't that what happened to his father? He had two of his servants, uh, Josachar and Jehozabad or something like that, conspired against him. Same thing happens to the son. They, these people in Israel, or excuse me, these people in Jerusalem, conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. So they chased him to Lachish and they killed him there. Verse 20, then they brought him on horse and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. So they buried him like a king. All the people of Judah took uh, Azariah, who was 16 years old, made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built uh, Elith and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. We should stop right there. So Amaziah, he lives 15 more years after Joash of Israel dies. He gets killed as part of a conspiracy, much like his father. Um, and it, it's, we're not told this, but it is possible that because of the downturn in his walk with the Lord, it also marked a downturn in his ability to reign as king. Because these conspirators were not interested in putting whoever they wanted on the throne. You, you see here in verse 21, they put the son of Amaziah on the throne. So they're not saying, one of the conspirators isn't saying, I'm going to be king. They just wanted to get rid of Amaziah. Why did they want to get rid of Amaziah? Well, certainly there was a downward turn in his kingdom when he's defeated by Joash of Israel. And um, so that's, that's possible, but we, we, really don't, um, we really don't know for sure. Uh, and so... Uh, Azariah now is going to be king. No effort is made to change the dynasty. They just want to get rid of the bad king. Okay, so that brings us to the end of Amaziah. And the next person, next king we're going to see is Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II. 13th ruler of Israel. There's his information there on the screen. He's going to reign from about 782 to 753, which is 41 years. And his record is found here in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23. To, to chapter 15, verse 7. So the end of chapter 14, beginning of chapter 15. That's what we find here. So when you, when you think about the reign of Amaziah, 
you see a repeated pattern. I'm just going to make some comments while you make sure you get this information down. We see a repeated pattern where a king starts out good, turns bad. Now, who's the first king? Who's the first king that we know of, that it really records? Who? Goes back before Jeroboam. Saul was never really a great king. <laughs> um, Solomon. Solomon starts out good and, and goes downhill. Um, and so we see that pattern come out over and over again with these other kings. How the ones who start out good, oftentimes they have these moments in their life, these lapses in their life that seem to take control of them. And... It ends up bad. Um, so now we're going to talk about Jeroboam number two. Jeroboam the second. No relation to Jeroboam the first. But Jeroboam's a nice royal name for being a king of Israel. Okay? Because that's, that's the first king of the divided kingdom of Israel is Jeroboam. So it's a nice royal, uh, royal name. And uh, so in the specific points here, we see a basic description in verse 23. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, reigned 41 years. So Jeroboam becomes king basically in the middle of Amaziah's reign, 15th year. Um, Joash is his father, his capital, Samaria. He's going to reign uh, for 41 years. 41 years. So that's a long, it's a long, long time. Um, in verse 24, we see his spiritual status. Since he did evil in the sight of the Lord, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But, and what kind of evil did he did? He did the same thing that Jeroboam number one did which is basically setting up a false worship system. Not necessarily idolatry, but a false worship system. In verses 25 through 27, we see some of the success of Jeroboam II where he's able to restore the northern border. Restoration of border in verses 25 through 27. It says, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the, <clears throat> by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So here's this restoration. First we see he reestablished the northern border as far as Hamath. Hamath, the city... Is about 115 miles 
north of Damascus, roughly 170 miles from the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which the Sea of Arabah is another name for the Sea of Galilee. So you get the Sea of Kinnereth, you get the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Arabah. It's all the same place. Okay. Um, this name, Hamath, is also associated with a region which lies just north of Damascus. So it's a city, but it's also a region. Both of the, these are north of Damascus. Uh, Hamath is mentioned very early in the history of Israel. Okay, so put a finger here. This is a historical name, historical place. Turn back to Numbers chapter 13, verse 21. Numbers chapter 13, verse 21. What's going on in Numbers 13? You know it. The spies going into the land. The spies going into the land. So look what it says here. Chapter 13, verse 21, it says, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, or Rehob, at Labo Hamath. There it is, Hamath. So the wilderness of Zin is that southern part of Israel. Okay, so they go from there all the way to the most northern part of Israel. That's the point. These spies, they looked at the entire land. And uh, here when it's in Numbers where it says Hamath, it's probably referring to the region and not the city. Um, and, and the way I would take it, is that these spies spied out the land all the way from the south, all the way up to where the Arameans lived. Okay, because in Hamath, that's the land of the Arameans. Um, we also see this uh, name in Joshua chapter 13. So on your way back to 2 Kings, stop in Joshua. Chapter 13, verse 5. Joshua 13, 5. Stop there on your way back to 2 Kings. Now you look at first, uh, what did I say? Joshua chapter 13. You look at Joshua chapter 13, verse 5. I'm going to read some other verses that lead up to this that sort of set the context says in verse 1, Now Joshua was, Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You're old and advanced in years. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. Okay, that's key. Joshua's old. Much of the land still remains to be possessed. Verse 2. This is the land that remains, what's indicated that remains to be possessed. And so we're going to get a list of all the land that needs still to be possessed by the children of Israel. Now, verse 5. And the land of the 
Gebelite, and all of Lebanon toward the east from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. So, what I want us to see in connection between what stated as the limits of the land that's supposed to be possessed by the Israelites is that in 2 Kings chapter um, 14, Jeroboam II possesses the land, the northern part. He doesn't possess any of the south, but he possesses to the northern limit that Joshua was supposed to take. Joshua never did it. Jeroboam does it, okay? Jeroboam is able to do that. He takes control of the land area up to the northern border of the land that Israel was to possess when they originally entered the land. That's pretty significant, especially for a king of Israel. He gets to do that. And we also notice, so we're back in 2 Kings 14 now. 2 Kings 14, verse 25, in the middle of verse 25. We also notice that this uh, victory, this reestablishment of the border, is based upon or according to prophecy. It says, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath, Hefer. So here, Jonah is mentioned, and this is the Jonah of the book of Jonah. Okay? Um, Jonah's ministry dates are from about 776 to 745 BC. And so it fits. It fits with Jeroboam II. Okay? And, and remember, the book of Jonah only records one episode in that prophet's life. It's not saying that that's all that he did, it's just one episode. And so this reestablishment of the borders is based on this prophecy that Jonah makes, but we also see its, its motivation comes from the Lord in verses 26 through 27. So why, did, why was he able to do this? Why was this prophecy given that this would happen? Verse 26, for or because the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free. That, that just simply means things were so bad in Israel that there was no distinction in classes. Everybody was suffering the same. Okay, the, the, just because you were free didn't mean you were any better off than the slave. Nor was there a helper for Israel. There was nobody there who was going to defeat um, Aram. Verse 27, the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So the Lord never said he would blot them out, the entire nation out. He never said that. 
But he saved them. How? What's it say there? Verse 27. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. So the Lord used Jeroboam to save Israel. And then in verses 28 through 29, we have the death in, uh, of, of uh, Jeroboam II. Notice um, in the middle of verse 28, here's what Jeroboam II is known for. How he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah. So he, 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 he got these back for Israel. Now, what are some of the things that we can learn from Jeroboam II? Number one, he had an unusually long reign, 41 years. And from my count, that's the longest reign of any king of Israel. 41 years. So I'm talking about the northern kingdom now. So that's the longest reign of any king of Israel. Now, in the south, there's a few kings who reign longer. You have Asa, he's at 41. You have Joash, he's at 40. You have Azariah, who will reign 52 years. And Manasseh, who will reign 55 years. 41 years, though, is a long time to reign. So the length of his reign corresponds to the stability and prosperity that Israel had, which the ability that the Lord gave him to take those cities is an indication of their prosperity and stability. Uh, the second thing I think we can learn from Jeroboam here is he's described as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Did evil in the sight of the Lord just like Jeroboam the first. But the Lord not only used him, uh, he, he not only used him to save Israel, but he used Jeroboam to reestablish control over the northern extent of the land. I mean, you think about when Haziel was in Aram. He was fighting Israel all the time, and he, most of the time he was winning. So Israel was losing ground. They weren't gaining ground. They were losing ground all the time in the north and in the east. And now Jeroboam is able to restore that. And he's able to do that because the Lord used him. Um, so I think what we see there is, is that it's clear that God can and does use unbelievers to accomplish his plan. Think about how God used Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and even the Pharaoh of the Exodus. God didn't do anything they weren't willing to do, um, but he still used them. And we have seen this exact same thing, how God uses wicked kings to do what he wants throughout our study of the kings of the divided kingdom. So you think of Baasha. Baasha put an end to Jeroboam, the first dynasty, because he sinned. God says, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. Baasha was the man who removed the kingdom, even though God was the one who had the plan. Um, Zimri put an end to Baasha's dynasty for the same reason. Baasha didn't follow the Lord. Jehu put an end to the Omri-Ahab dynasty because God was going to punish them for their wickedness. So you see this same thing happen all the time, and it happens here 
with Jeroboam II. Um, the third and final thing that I think we see here with um, Jeroboam is this prophecy from Jonah. And uh, I don't know if you've thought about it yet, but I thought about it, is how does this prophecy of Jonah here relate to the book of Jonah? So who does Jonah go to in the book? Where does he go? Nineveh. Now, what nationality or what people group? Assyrians. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is gaining power right now, and they're asserting power all the way over into Aram. You know, they're coming across the top of the Fertile Crescent uh, over to Aram. And uh, they're, gaining, they're gaining a reputation. And what's the reputation of the Assyrians when Jonah goes to them? They're brutal, ungodly people, you know, immoral, ungodly people. So that all matches. Um, we also know that it was under the Assyrian king Adad-Nirari III that Damascus fell in, uh, I think it's like 18, 1805 or something like, or eight, yeah, 18, 805 or something like that. So it's not too far, it's not too far away from our time here. Um, and Benadad II was defeated at that time. And it's because that um, Adad Narari III defeated the Arameans that weakened them so much so that Jeroboam II could then go up and retake all these cities. Because remember, the army of Israel was decimated. It was Haziel, the Aramean, decimated the army of uh, Israel. Back in chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, we see that where they only had uh, 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. The army was decimated. They had no real strong military power until you get um, on a little bit later. So they just didn't have much. And uh, so it's because of this we see how the Lord in the history working his plan out that all these things work together. Um, so, again, back to the question, how does the book of Jonah fit in with this ministry of Jonah here in 2 Kings? And uh, I would say that the book of Jonah probably comes after this. Um, and it probably comes... There, there, are, there are three kings in Assyria between the guy who takes Damascus and the guy who's going to come up against Israel and finally defeat Israel. There's three kings. None of those three kings are especially powerful. Okay, the... And so it seems in the time period of any one of those three kings that this is when Jonah goes to Nineveh. 
Um, so it's, it would be a little bit after this. Okay. So, well, that's all the time we have here this evening. So I still, you still have Azariah. Well, we didn't get to Azariah, so you just missed one king tonight. So that's, that's pretty good. So we got through most of the notes, and we still got one king to get through. We'll get to Azariah uh, next week. Okay? Azariah, he's the 10th ruler of Judah. And... Um, the key thing to remember about Azariah will be he has another name. Do you know Azariah's other name? Uzziah. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but the prophetic activity is going to pick up pace. Because who's a prophet in the time of Azariah slash Uzziah? Who's a prophet? Isaiah is a prophet. Hosea is a prophet. Amos is a prophet. All during the time of Uzziah. So the prophetic activity is going to be raised up. Okay, well, let me pray and we'll, we'll be uh, <clears throat> finished. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for your plan that you're working out and especially that you're faithful to your word that we saw here even this evening and how you preserved and took care of Israel even though they had turned from you and weren't following you but you were going to be faithful to the covenant that you made with Abraham and so we give you thanks for that Lord um, help us to learn from these kings the importance of being faithful not just once or twice but being faithful consistently so that we wouldn't be marked out like they are as maybe being a little bit good and then falling into apostasy, but we would be marked out as serving you our whole lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So any any